worship together as his people. Uh, I would direct your attention to the announcement bulletin. There's quite a number of, of matters in there that are of um, near relevance, you know, that, that are, uh, the deadline is nearby. The one I would highlight is that we have worship this Friday at 7 p.m. And uh, during that time, we hope to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So if you're a, uh, a visitor who plans to be here, um, who is a member in good standing elsewhere, we would encourage you to visit either with me or with one of the elders uh, before that so that, uh, so that we can chat with you about celebrating together with us. Um, otherwise, please take care or take, take uh, time to read those announcements later on. Also, a uh, request uh, from the Crosbys, they asked that I uh, express to the congregation their appreciation for the prayers and calls and meals and kindness shown um, as they have grieved the death of Tiffany's brother. Beloved, we have such a privilege to gather for worship this day that we might do so in a way that's pleasing to God. Let's join our hearts together in a moment of prayer, asking that God would, would equip us for this time and would make us pleasing to Him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to gather in your presence and give you worship. We pray that you would turn our hearts in such a way that not just the words that we speak or the actions that we commit, but even the very thoughts and desires of our hearts might be pleasing to you. And We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. In Revelation 5, the Apostle describes to us what he witnessed in heaven as the elders surrounding the throne of God proclaimed concerning Christ, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, that is the scroll expressing God's will. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on earth. They're talking about us. Christ has made us to be a kingdom of priests equipped and called to worship and glorify God. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. That is our calling. That is the, the calling of all the creation, to give glory and honor to Christ and to God the Father whom He came to serve. Congregation of our Lord Jesus, from where does your help come? Our help comes from the Lord, the Maker of heaven and earth. Hear now His greeting. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let us sing praise together to the Lord from number 233. Number 233 will sing stanzas 1, 2, 5, and 8.
after God had sustained His people in the wilderness for 40 years, as He was drawing them near to entering into the promised land where they would take hold of the the physical promise that God had promised His people, which was given and designed to show us a, a foretaste of heaven and the new heavens and the new earth. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who all of us are here today, here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and who keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you nor your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you. In the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. In short, as Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This, he said, is the first and the great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's a high calling. A comprehensive calling. But it's the calling for which we were made. We were made to exercise dominion over the earth. We were made to bear God's image in all the earth. And therefore... We must show love for God. Restraining, removing from us all of the impulses to rebellion that lurk within and seeking instead to show His holiness. But of ourselves we can't, can we? 
Every one of us sins. Every one of us fails. And so this law, while calling us to a renewed devotion to the Lord, while calling us to strive anew to show our gratitude, it also calls us to humble ourselves and confess that we stand before God not on the basis of what we have done, but on the basis of Christ, His righteousness, His holiness, His payment for sin. So let's confess that our hope is not in us, but in Him, as we sing together number 44. This is a rendering of the first eight verses of Psalm 25, and it's a confession of where our hope truly is found. And that's in the Lord. Number 44, all three stanzas. To all who trust in Jesus Christ for their righteousness, for their forgiveness, for their standing before God, the Lord assures us with the words of Paul in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's our comfort. That's our assurance. Though we do not live lives of perfection by any means, if we live by the Spirit, if we live as those who are striving to put away 
our sin, demonstrating the truth of the faith that's within us, that rests in Christ. There's no condemnation because Jesus has done it all. We see that powerfully each time we have the opportunity to celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And this Friday, Lord willing, we anticipate celebrating that sacrament. As we prepare to do so, as is our custom, we take a moment to recall the significance of that sacrament. We're going to, I'm going to be reading from page 37 and 38 in your Forms and Prayers book if you want to read along. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, let us give full attention to the words of the institution of the Holy Supper of our Lord as they are delivered by the Apostle Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way also He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That we may now celebrate the supper of the Lord to our comfort, it is necessary to examine ourselves fully, and further to consider carefully the purpose of for which Christ ordained and instituted this sacrament, namely, His remembrance. The true examination of ourselves consists of three parts. First, let everyone carefully consider his sins and ungodliness, that they may hate their sins and humble themselves before God, considering that the wrath of God against sin is so great that He, rather than leaving it unpunished, has punished it in His beloved Son, Jesus Christ, with the bitter and shameful death of the cross. Second, let everyone examine their heart to see whether they also believe the sure promise of God that all their sins are forgiven only because of the passion and death of Jesus Christ and that the complete righteousness of Christ is imputed and freely given to them as their own. Indeed, so completely as if they personally had satisfied for all their sins and fulfilled all righteousness. And third, let everyone carefully examine their own conscience to see if they are fully determined to show true thankfulness to God in every area of life and to walk sincerely before His face and whether they with full sincerity strive to lay aside all enmity, hatred, and envy and earnestly resolve from this day forward to live with their neighbor in true love and unity. All those then who are of this mind, God will certainly receive in grace and count as worthy partakers of the table of His Son Jesus Christ. But on the contrary, those who do not sincerely believe this testimony in their hearts eat and drink judgment upon themselves. According to the command of Christ and the Apostle Paul, those who know themselves to be engaged in the following sins without repentance have no part in the kingdom of Christ and therefore should abstain from coming to the table of the Lord. Idolaters, those who call upon deceased saints, angels, or any other creature, those who revere images, those who engage in witchcraft, fortune-telling, occult practices, or other forms of superstition, 
All who despise God, His Word, and His holy sacraments, all blasphemers. Those who seek to cause discord, factions, and dissension in the church or in the state, all perjurers. All who are disobedient to their parents and those in lawful authority, all murderers, contentious people, and those who live in hatred and envy against their neighbors, all adulterers, fornicators, drunkards, thieves, the greedy, robbers, gamblers, covetous people, and all who lead offensive lives, all those who continue continue in such sins shall abstain from the Lord's Supper so that they feel the weight of God's judgment and condemnation. But, this warning is not intended to discourage those believers with contrite hearts, as if no one might come to the Lord's Supper unless they are without sin. For we do not come to this supper to testify about our own perfection and righteousness, but on the contrary, we come seeking life in Jesus Christ apart from ourselves. We come confessing our misery, admitting that we have many shortcomings and do not have perfect faith. We also confess that we do not serve God with sufficient zeal, but that we must struggle daily with the weakness of our faith and struggle against the evil lusts of our flesh. However, the grace of the Holy Spirit makes us sorry for our shortcomings, gives us the desire to live according to God's commandments, and helps us to fight against unbelief. Therefore, we can rest assured that no sin or weakness that still remains in us against our will can prevent us from being received by God's grace and from being made worthy partakers of this heavenly food and drink. Beloved, thus assured, let us at the appointed hour come with quiet conscience and with fullness of faith to keep this sacramental feast which our Lord appointed to be a constant memorial of His atoning death until He comes again, that we may obtain help in this. Let's join our hearts together in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, You by whose law all men are tried and by whose gospel we have hope, we, Your servants, look to You for help in the self-examination to which we are called. Of Your grace, You have called us to come to the table of Your Son. In mercy, regard our miseries and have compassion on us in our weakness. We bring accusation against ourselves and lay transgression to our account. Enable each of us in the light of your holy word to read the secrets of his own heart and to recognize the fruits of your work of grace within. Strengthen us by your Holy Spirit so that we may obediently heed your call in sincere repentance and true faith. Graciously remove whatever in us might prevent our coming. Let no love of sin or untruth, no pride or lust of heart, no hatred or envy toward our neighbor, no remnant of unbelief remain within us to hinder our coming. By your Spirit, assemble us at the appointed hour to commemorate in an unbroken bond of Christian fellowship the atoning death of our Savior. And Father, we pray likewise that you would meet the many other needs of your children. Father, you know the needs of your people, for we have laid them before you. You know those who grieve and who long for your comfort. You know those who face ailments of the flesh and who long for your healing. 
You know those who wrestle with unbelief, with guilt over their sin, with the power of sin over their life. Those who have fractures in the nearest relationships in their lives with their husbands or wives, with their children or parents, with their brothers or sisters, neighbors or co-workers. Father, we pray that You would provide the healing, the help, the reconciliation that is needful. And we pray, Father, that You would so reveal to us the work that You are doing in our lives. That we would be eager to show You our gratitude. Eager to testify to all who will hear that You are the source of our hope, our help, and our strength. Father, during this time of year as we ponder the suffering of Christ on our behalf, but also the victory that He showed forth in His resurrection. Enable us to speak freely and openly to our children and our grandchildren, to our brothers and our sisters, to our neighbors, of where our hope is found. And Lord, teach us to renew our devotion to You, that our lives might testify before we ever say a word, that our hope is in You and our strength is in Your Spirit. Father, we pray that You would provide for each person according to their need. And we pray that You would watch over Your church in every place where it's gathered. You have given Your congregation the calling to make disciples of the nations. And we see the enslavement of the nations, the continued lust of the unbeliever for the ways of the wicked one. And we see how they, how they live in a way that demonstrates they have no hope, they have no help, they have no true joy in life. Father, we pray that You would turn the hearts of many that they might see their misery and long for escape from it. That they might be open to hearing the truth and accepting it. And we pray that you would prepare our hearts and the hearts of your people in every place where they gather to speak the truth of the hope that is within us and to call unto repentance and faith those whom you set in our path, in our life, to come and to hear your word proclaimed. To walk beside us that walk of discipleship. To confess humbly before you their need. And to live boldly before you in an expression of faith. Father, we ask your blessing on all that we do this day. That through our worship we might glorify you. That through our fellowship we might build up and strengthen one another. That through our catechizing, we might learn and grow in the knowledge of Christ. That through our rest, we might be prepared for the work which you will set before us in this week. Father, we pray that in all of it, you would be glorified and your people built up. Hear us, we pray in the name of our ever-living intercessor, Jesus, 
to whom with you and the Holy Spirit belong all praise and glory. This we ask. Amen. As we prepare to look together to God's Word, we're going to stand and sing from Selection 34. This is a rendering of uh, a portion of Psalm 22. Kids, Psalm 22, though it was written many, many years before Jesus was born in the flesh, it's written as an expression of the suffering that He did on our behalf. And that's helpful as we prepare to look again to Isaiah 53 where it talks about His suffering. We can see that, that God ordained long before that Jesus would suffer for our sin. That He would take the penalty for our rebellion so that we could know the blessing that He deserved. So we're going to sing number 34, stanzas 1 and 4, then 7, 9, and 11. 1, 4, 7, 9, and 11 of 34. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 53. We've been looking at this song of the suffering servant in which Isaiah was led by God to foretell how Jesus would come and would suffer on our behalf. This morning we intend to look at verses 7 through 9, but I'd like to start at verse 4 just so we can again see that context of what the prophet writes. Starting in verse 4. 
Isaiah declares, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man at his death, though he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Amen. People of God beloved in Christ, I have a confession. I am not good at suffering silently. My wife can attest to the fact that when I suffer, I tend to suffer loudly. If I'm miserable, I talk about it. Because it's hard to suffer in silence. For one thing, you want someone else to know that you're not, or to express to you that you're not necessarily at fault. You want someone to tell you that your suffering you know, couldn't be avoided, or that it wasn't something that, that you deserved. Sometimes you just want to rant. You want to express the unfairness of it all or the hurt of it all. You want their sympathy, right? Or, or you want to see if maybe they have a solution, a way out of this suffering, a way to relieve the, the pain or the discomfort. But not Jesus. He didn't suffer loudly. He didn't protest or groan or complain or appeal. When he suffered, Jesus didn't even hardly speak. He just took it. Accepted it. Even though he was the one man who absolutely did not deserve it. And as a result, we who deserve suffering can have confidence that our suffering will end. What an amazing gift. From our Savior. The silently endured suffering of Christ. Is a gift so excellent from a Savior so gracious. That God's people need to confess it. For all to hear. And so the theme of our text this morning. Verses 7 through 9. Is that God's people sing of the Lamb who silently, submissively suffered. God's people sing of the Lamb who silently and submissively suffered. And the first thing we need to recognize about that confession to which we're called is the silence demonstrated His submission. So we're going to look first at the servant's silent submission. Remember our context. Verse 6 showed how it was us. We were the ones who strayed like sheep. But the guilt of our straying, the cost of our straying, God laid on His servant Jesus. He didn't deserve that suffering. He understood God's law better than anyone else. And He kept it 
with the utmost perfection. Nonetheless, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Oppression, that, that speaks of harsh treatment. A lack of mercy. Affliction speaks of humiliation that is deep and enduring. That was the nature of the suffering that Jesus endured. It was the nature of the words that men spoke cruelly deepening His suffering. It was the nature of the physical abuse that His body endured. Now that suffering would have been hard for anyone to endure. But how much worse to know that you don't deserve any of it. I suspect for any other man, any mere man, it would have been intolerable. We would have cried out in protest. We would have expressed our indignation. We would have begged for either mercy or sympathy. But Jesus did not. Despite the agony of His suffering, despite the crushing weight of God's wrath, Jesus didn't cry out. He opened not His mouth, says Isaiah. He refused to answer those who were afflicting Him. They, they neither heard His cry of pain nor a plea for leniency. He didn't respond the way men expect men to respond to suffering. We expect them to cry out. We expect them to plead for mercy. We expect them to break at some point. But He didn't. He wouldn't. Isaiah emphasizes that in the second half of verse 7. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Verse 6 says, We were the ones who like sheep went astray. But Jesus was like a sheep in a different way. He was shorn. What's that mean, children? When a sheep is shorn, all of that beautiful wool that keeps them warm and insulated and protected from not just the cold, but also briars and thorns and predators, that's taken off of them, right? That's a valuable asset that they have and it's removed from them. And so Jesus, He was stripped of all that men value. He was separated from all that might protect him. And then he was led to the slaughter. Stripped even of his life. Along with his dignity. Along with all mercy. And yet his, his response. How does a lamb respond when it is led to the slaughter? You know how? The same way it responds when it's led to the feed bunk. Or when it's led into the pasture. A lamb doesn't respond when it's being led to the slaughter. It just goes where it's led. What does a mature sheep do when standing before those who would shear it? If it's been sheared before, it knows that there's no hurt in this. It might balk a little bit, but not really. Because it knows this is going to pass quickly. Folks, Jesus silence. Jesus Refusal to respond in protest is not a small thing. His suffering was an intense thing, both of body and of soul, and yet he uttered not a word of protest or complaint or defense. Matthew 27 verse 12 says, When he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. 
And then Pilate speaks to him and says, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. He was amazed because no one else responded that way. They all answered. The guilty ones lied, trying to get out of it, trying to convince the governor that the, the charges weren't true. And the innocent ones really protested. Same thing when they took him to Herod. Herod questioned him, says Luke 23, at some length, but he made no answer. And then the chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod and his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. But he said nothing. Now what's that show us? That silent suffering of our Savior, what does it show us? It shows us, first of all, the superiority, the greatness of Jesus' suffering. When I suffer, as I said, I, I say something about it. And my wife, being merciful, usually responds. Maybe she'll, maybe she'll at least speak some kind words that make me recognize I'm not alone. Or maybe she'll, she'll bandage the wound for me. At the very least, by being there, it alleviates some of the suffering for me. But Jesus didn't do that. He didn't seek comfort. He didn't seek relief. He didn't seek reprieve. No one spoke words of sympathy that eased his grief. No one came to his defense to let him know that he wasn't alone. Jesus bore the full weight of the suffering and the rejection that our sins had earned. And his suffering was not at all relieved. So we see the superiority of his suffering, but also the willingness with which he embraced it. We know that Jesus didn't desire to suffer. He prayed just before his arrest, Father, if there be any other way, take this cup away from me. He knew what it would involve, and he didn't, he didn't crave that. He didn't desire that. But when the time came, when the Father demonstrated, no, this is the only way, He accepted it all. He endured it all and He did it without complaint so that He might bear it perfectly for us. That willingness, that selflessness, it demonstrates not only, not only the superiority of His suffering and the willingness with which He took it, it revealed the immense love that underlay it all. Folks, such love as was expressed by the servant's silent submission, that's a love that we cannot let go unanswered. Recognize the awe-inspiring depth of Jesus' love for us. No one could sacrifice as much as He did. No one else could show that kind of devotion for you. So great was His love that He endured willingly a suffering that would have crushed and destroyed anyone else. How can you know that and not rejoice? I mean, we rejoice when we're feeling alone, we're feeling hurt, and someone embraces us. Shows us that we're not alone. Shows us that someone cares and it gives us that, that thrill within. We rejoice in them. How much more must we rejoice in our Savior who took all of it in all of its fullness? 
wouldn't even allow the slightest edge to be taken off His suffering because of His love for us. Must we not rejoice in that love and love Him back? When I say you must love the servant who so loved you, that needs to be more than just an emotional response. You know, so, so often in our culture we think of love and we think of that warm fuzzy feeling. But you know, God loved us when there was nothing lovable about us. It was a choice. It was a volitional act. He chose to love us when we were utterly unlovable. Sometimes you don't feel like loving Jesus. Love Him anyway. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Live for me. Submit to me. As I submitted to the Father for your sake, so you submit to me out of love. We choose to love the Lord. The emotion comes, and sometimes it fades, and it comes back. But we choose to love Him by obeying Him, by confessing Him, by worshiping, by, by singing His praises. In this way, we must respond to His silent submission, demonstrating our gratitude for all that He's done. You know, despite the love that was evident in Jesus' suffering, Israel at the time didn't wouldn't see it. All most of them saw was that by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And that leads us to our second point. Not only do we see here the servant's silent submission, we see Israel's superficial rejection. Understand what the prophet is saying when he says by oppression and judgment he was taken away. When the people saw Jesus arrested and mistreated and tried and punished. They saw a man who was arrested by the authorities. They saw a man who was condemned by the legal system. They didn't see a wild mob dragging him to... No, no, no. They saw the leaders and the authorities whom they respected, whom they knew they were called to submit to, fulfilling a legal action. Now, now they didn't see the messiness of it. They weren't present in the room with the Jewish council when they dismissed one witness after another because none of them agreed with each other. They didn't see them suborning perjury. They just saw the result. They saw the council bringing him before Pilate and saying, we have a law and according to that law he must die. The people who witnessed Jesus' death, they saw a legal event, and so that's what they accepted. That's what they believed. Now, verse 8 asks a question that's a bit difficult to, to translate and render accurately, but if we look at it carefully, we'll get it. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? What they're saying is, who doubted? Who questioned it? Who scratched their heads and said, are we sure this is righteous? Are we sure that he's guilty? Is he really suffering and dying for us or for himself? What's happening here? No one questioned it. No one doubted it. No one asked the questions. They just assumed in the moment that he was guilty. They saw a man stricken 
The Hebrew word there is typically used in connection with God's judgment. And that's what they thought they saw. They saw a man stricken, a man condemned by their legal system and therefore condemned by God. So they never hesitated. They never paused, nor would we have. We would have done, most of us, precisely what they did. Rejecting the servant. And it would have been a superficial rejection. See, that's the point. They saw the actions of their leaders and they accepted it uncritically. Wise men, knowing the sinfulness and the corruption that lurks in the hearts of all men, ought carefully to evaluate the actions of their leaders to see whether perhaps there's sin, rebellion, unrighteousness wrapped up in what's being done. But they didn't. They were uncritical in their rejection of Jesus. They were unthinking in taking up the call to crucify Him. A week before, they were welcoming Him with cries of Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And less than a week later, they're taking up the cry that their leaders are are calling them to cry out. Crucify Him! Crucify Him! His blood be on our heads and on those of our children. And therefore they made his grave with the wicked, says verse 9. We'll deal with the rest of verse 9 in a minute. But but that first line shows us what the people intended. They made his grave with the wicked. They regarded him as one worthy of the suffering he was enduring. They regarded him as a criminal who was worthy of God's wrath. And they were wrong. Their rejection was superficial. And we must not make that same error. In our judgment of anyone, we need to beware of superficial judgment. That's why Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. He wasn't saying there's no place for judgment. There is. In fact, he tells us that elsewhere. He tells us that in the church, we must carefully judge those who call themselves brother, but live as those who are unbelievers. 1 Corinthians 5. He tells us in Romans 13, that the magistrate is called to exercise judgment against those who do evil. But we must judge carefully, discerningly, not superficially. We do wrong to assume the guilt of those who are mistreated. We do wrong to assume the unrighteousness of those who are arrested. Sometimes, The innocent are arrested wrongly. Sometimes the guilty suffer unjustly. We must be slow to judge, wary of rejecting. And not just with men at large. We must be discerning in our judgment of Jesus. Ponder carefully the purpose of His death. He did nothing wrong. He made no missteps. He said not a word that was untoward. The reason for Jesus' suffering and death was not what it appeared on the surface. But it was for us that He suffered. For us that He was condemned. He was justly condemned only, only because He bore our sin. Our guilt. Our transgression. That's the only thing that made this suffering just. Well, Israel, in superficially rejecting the servant, They assigned him a grave with the wicked. But the opinions of those men were not ultimate. God had different plans. 
And he demonstrated that with the final disposition of his son. That's the last thing we see in the rest of verse 9, God's surprising intervention. Now verse 9 presents a bit of difficulty arising from language and translation. The way it's written in the Hebrew, those first two phrases, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. In Hebrew, those phrases could be regarded as synonymous parallels. In other words, two phrases that say essentially the same thing. Or as contrasting parallels. Two phrases that say something different. The ESV translates the phrase, or the, that portion of the verse, as though they were synonymous. To treat a man as a rich man is to treat him as one who is wicked. Problem is, that doesn't match Jewish attitudes, Jewish theology of the ancient world. Criminals, those judged worthy to die, wicked enough to be killed, they were treated terribly at their death. Their bodies were left out in the sun to rot. The birds pecking away at their flesh because they wanted it to be seen as a deterrent that this Individual was wicked and received the wrath of God himself. But the rich were not treated as evildoers. To the contrary, the Jews typically regarded them as blessed. Not just because they liked money, but because of passages like Deuteronomy 28, where God said, if you follow after my commands, if you show your faith in me, I will bless you in a multitude of ways. And they regarded that blessing of riches as a demonstration of God's blessing. So the rich usually were carried with or were buried with great care and respect. I think in this case the, the New King James Version renders the verse much more appropriately. They made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. That's a perfectly legitimate translation of the Hebrew, and it fits better the reflection or the, the theology of the Jews of the day. What it's saying, what Isaiah is saying there is, they made his grave with the wicked. They regarded him, the Jews regarded him as an evildoer. One who deserved to be scorned, one who deserved to be cast off, one who deserved that cross and all of its ignominy. But... with a rich man at his death. What the Jews intended is not what occurred. In death he lay not with the wicked, but with the rich, those blessed of God. Now why does that matter? Folks, it matters because it shows that what men intended and what God intended were very different. Israel, the church of 2,000 years ago, rejected the servant of God. They planned to give him a grave among the wicked. Because that's how they in their superficial judgment regarded him. But God had other plans. We read in John 19, verses 38 and 39, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes. 
about 75 pounds in weight. Now Joseph and Nicodemus were rich men, but they were not wicked. Luke 23 verse 50 says, Joseph was a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action in framing Jesus. And so he took the body of Jesus along with Nicodemus and laid it in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. They wrapped his body in strips of linen, coating it with myrrh and aloe, a very expensive process that was designed to show honor to the dead. This was not the burial of one who was scorned, one who was dishonored. This was a burial marked with love and honor and respect, the burial of a man regarded as righteous, and that was entirely appropriate because, as Isaiah said, he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Neither by what he did nor by what he said had the servant of God sinned. He was innocent. He was unworthy himself of what he had done. And God wanted the world to see it. That's why he was buried in this way. Now doubtless there were secondary reasons. Doubtless when Joseph and Nicodemus did this, they were simply thinking of of honoring, respecting this servant, this Messiah whom they had loved and followed if only in secret. And Pilate, releasing the body, he probably was still racked with guilt and uncertainty given what he had seen at Jesus' trial. But remember that Jesus' burial came after the suffering was over. It was on the cross as he drew his last breath that Jesus cried out, It is finished. With his death, the price was paid. The debt was ended. And even in being laid in the tomb, his glorification was being foreshadowed. That's what this burial with the rich was showing. God was saying, this was not a wicked man. This was not a man who suffered all of that for himself. He was blessed. He was beloved. He was righteous. He was perfect. My friends, we need to understand how unlikely, how unheard of Jesus' burial with the rich was. Criminals were not buried in that way. Their bodies were desecrated as a demonstration of the scorn of society and the wrath of God. But Jesus' body was treated with the honor due one who was richly blessed of the Lord. And that was right, that was proper, because he had done no wrong. His suffering was for us for all who would trust in Him. Beloved, we must honor that. We must recognize that. And we must glorify Him as His Father did. That means when others scorn Him, when others mock Him, when others take His name in vain, we must not be silent. He was silent for us so that we would not be silent Before Him. We must honor Him. We must tell them who He is. And why He means so much. And why His death was the most precious thing to us. And the most loving thing He could have done. We need to tell them. 
That He was the one blessed of God, the one who didn't deserve it, but He did it so that we could enter the presence of God. We need to confess that it was for our sin that He suffered and died, and that when He did, He paid it all. It is finished, was His cry. And He meant once and for all. There's nothing else for us to do, no other debt for us to pay. It's already done. And don't stop with the confession of your lips. Recognize how different were the judgments of men and of God and therefore resolve to rest your judgment on God's Word, to seek your wisdom from God's Spirit. Trust in the Lord to let you judge rightly, not by eyes, but by the the mind of the Lord. What's that mean? It means let us not judge superficially. You see that co-worker and you think he won't have any interest in the Lord. There's no way he would fit in at church. That's superficial. Jesus died for the likes of that co-worker whose sins are no worse, no more ugly, no more black than your own. So share Christ with Him. Tell Him what Jesus did. Tell Him how Jesus suffered. Tell Him how God honored Jesus. And trust that God will call those who are His own. No matter how they look, no matter how men regard them. Judge not with the eyes, judge not with the judgment of society, but judge with the love and the mercy of Christ, who died for wicked sinners like us, that we might be received with love and with honor as He was. Beloved, Jesus willingly became the sacrifice for our sin, enduring an unthinkable death in silence. God knew that we would reject Him just like that first generation did. So He Himself intervened, demonstrating that He was righteous, that He was blessed of God. So acknowledge what God has revealed. Confess Jesus as the innocent Lamb who was sacrificed for us. And proclaim with joy and with faith the praises of the Lamb who in His sacrifice became our life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You and and we praise You that You loved us so very much and demonstrated Your love in the death of Your Son. We pray that You would help us, equip us to testify for all who will hear that Jesus was innocent that we were the guilty ones and that what He did paid all our debt. Help us to love Him and confess Him boldly. And Lord, use us despite our weakness, despite our continued sin. Use us to bring glory and honor to Your name as others hearing our word are drawn unto You. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us confess together the wonder that Jesus would do all of this for us as we stand and sing number 352. We'll sing all four stanzas, number 352.
Let's pray. Father, as we worship You now with our tithes and with our offerings, we pray that You would receive it as a demonstration of our gratitude, just a token of our love given in response to the immense love that You showed in Christ. And we pray that You would be glorified through those gifts which we give as You lead and guide our deacons well to use it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. During our offering, we're going to sing number 213. This is a portion of Psalm 107. Children, as we sing this song, think about the message that it reveals to us. How time and again in the history of God's people, men have gone astray. And God allowed them to suffer some of the consequence of their sin until they turned. But as soon as they turn, He shows mercy. As soon as they repent and seek Him, He restores. Let's sing together number 213. Thank you. 
Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.